0: You're a God who actually invites us into your program. God who comes to dwell within those who placed their faith in your Son, actually to reside there for all eternity. That is That is shocking. Thank you for that, that you're that kind of a God. You're God whose words actually have life in them the power of life to create the power of conviction. The power of revelation to bring sight where there's blindness. The power to humble and chastise where that needs to happen. The power to heal, encourage, equip. God, if my mind was expanded. If we could think in unlimited, infinite ways, we could go on throughout all eternity. Just in praise for your infinite goodness, your infinite greatness. Just accept that praise this morning. <clears throat> And then, Father, this one request right now. You know what's on my heart. You, you know how I'm feeling about what is before us here. Oh, God, I am. So asking you that you'd hide me in Christ. So asking that you would let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight right now. I'm asking that your spirit of truth, your Holy Spirit, the same spirit that inspired the writers of Scripture and carried them along as they penned the sacred text that you would carry me along in proclaiming that sacred text, that truth once delivered to the saints. That you would help me, God, to do it only in your power with just none of me Holy Spirit, I know that only You can do eternal things through the living Word, the written Word that is alive about the living Word, Jesus Christ. You just send it out today. Trusting You've got to do that. Thanking You for it. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Right on. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We're going to pick up our study through Paul's letter to the church at Rome. We're going to read verses 12 and 13 today and try to get through, at least started with those. But let me just start by... Asking a few questions that I just I don't want any external response, but I just want you to answer this with sincerity and honesty in your heart. First question. If you're a believer in here this morning, if you're a justified, redeemed follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, do you have any struggle with sin? Just privately in your own heart? Do you ever have a struggle with sin? Second question. Do you believe that the purpose for which you are created physically and have physical life and the purpose for which you were recreated Through your faith in Christ into a new life and eternal life, do you believe that the one great purpose of your existence is to bring glory to God? Third question Do you believe that the sin in your life hinders and affects your ability to bring glory to God? through your life. Now, if you answered yes to that first question, I'm not going to take a show of hands here, but I'm pretty confident that the percentage is probably hovering just somewhere around 100. Okay? And that if you are a believer that you... Are deeply convinced that the purpose that you're drawing breath is for the glory of God. And that sin, which is an affront to God's holiness, sin, which equates with darkness, is something that actually is in conflict with the light and that that sin actually then must hinder you must hinder me from being the reflection of Jesus Christ to those that are around us from being a light that testifies to the glory of the father. So, if those apply to you, then this message and what will follow over the next two weeks, this little mini-series from Romans chapter 8, verse 13, is tailored exactly for you. I am... Standing here this morning, I want you to know that I'm, I am here as one saying all of those three questions I answered in the strong, affirmative yes for me. And I convinced that what we're going to dive into here get an introduction to here this morning and try to go fairly deeply in the next couple of weeks could very well be the most... and I'm talking about from the perspective of the Father. I'm not claiming to have the corner on the market understanding there, but I'm just saying I have a conviction here that what I'm going to cover over the next uh, three weeks, at least three weeks... Could be the most important series that I have ever communicated to you. Romans chapter 8, verse 12 and 13. Paul writes So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Let's look at verse 12. We'll do this very quickly here on verse 12 because it's really a setup to something he wants to communicate in verse 13. But I need to show you a few things about it. Opens with two words, so then. Those are really critical words. What those two words mean is this. That the truth of verses 12 and 13 are emptied of their meaning and stripped of their power unless they are considered and interpreted in light of what has just previously been said. So that. He is basing the truth. He is going to communicate in verses 12. In verses 12 and 13, on the foundation of what he has just communicated in the previous verses, so that he opens this statement here in verse 12, so that. So let me just give you quickly the pretext coming into the text here. Just the three verses that precede verse 12. What has Paul just said? What is the foundational truth that he has just laid in verses 9, 10, and 11? Verse 9, he laid in place this truth. That every believer, every Christian, at the moment they were justified, something radical happened to them. A radical change happened to them. Here's the change. They no longer are existing in the flesh. They were in the flesh before they were saved, before they were justified. They lived in the realm of the flesh, under the dominion of the flesh, in slavery and in bondage to the flesh, hopeless, at enmity with God because of the flesh, but at the moment of justification, they are no longer in the flesh. They have been taken out of that realm. They have an entirely new existence. Second thing that he says in verse 10 is this that the Spirit dwells within the life of every believer. From the moment of justification, it is the Spirit of God who does the work of justification, taking what Jesus Christ has done through his identity, as deity, and his death on the cross and resurrection. In When we put our faith in Christ, the Spirit of God takes the work that Christ has accomplished for us. He applies it in our behalf in the moment of justification, and then he comes in there to live and to dwell. Verse 11, here's the third truth that prefaces the truth of verse 12 and 13. Paul says in verse 11 that although we have been justified and are no longer, quote, existing in the realm of the flesh defined by this absolute bondage to and dominion of the flesh, And even though we have the Spirit of God living in us, the reality is we still have a mortal body. We still are within the shell of this human existence here on earth, and that shell still has sin present in it. But what's going to happen one day, verse 11, is this. That one day the work of redemption that began in us at the moment of justification is going to carry on and one day this body, this corruptible mortal body is going to be transformed by the spirit of God when Jesus returns and the corruptible is going to put on incorruption and the mortal is going to put on immortality and we're going to be given a brand new spiritual body fit for our eternal home in heaven that's going to be our reality and that's when redemption is going to be fully completed in us when that third aspect we have already been saved spirit and soul but one day that completion is going to take place when Christ returns and also this body is going to be redeemed that currently right now is still a mortal body in the flesh so then Paul says in verse 12 based upon those three previous truths that he has committed just communicated he says in verse 12 so then we are debtors Not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Now, let me give you just kind of a, maybe a little um, unprofessional paraphrase of that. What Paul is saying here, he's saying to you as a believer, based upon those truths that he's just explained, so then don't wimp out. Don't wimp out. Realize who you are and what has been done to you. You're not in the flesh anymore, under the dominion of the flesh anymore, in bondage anymore. You have a brand new existence in an entirely different realm. You are already righteous, perfect in the sight of God. You are already dead to sin resurrected with Jesus, spirit and soul, seated at the right hand with the Father. Yes, I know that there's this one aspect of your existence, this mortal body that you're still carrying around in this world. But listen, don't live in bondage to it. You don't have to do that. In, In fact, I'm commanding you by the Spirit of God, do not do that anymore. You're not a debtor to that body anymore. You don't have to live under that dominion anymore. And you know, that is, I've said this to you many times since we've been in Romans chapter 5, 6 and 7 and half of 8 for over a year and a half. We've been communicating this truth. Paul always frames the subject of sanctification this way. It's so what he's talking about here is sanctification. Talking about your growth in the Christian life. You living in a way that honors and glorifies Jesus. You becoming more like him. He always couches that pursuit of holiness, that walk of sanctification like this. First, understand who you are. Get a deep conviction a clear understanding of what actually God has done for you in the person of Jesus Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. Understand who you are and what has been done in you and what the Spirit of God is doing in you and embrace that deeply and reflect upon it regularly and learn more and more about the reality of the riches of Christ that are yours and then live like it. You've got to know the truth in order to live the truth. Let me say it the way that Jesus perfectly said it. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Set you free to do what? Live as you want to live? No, it's going to set you free to live it out. That's always the way Paul couches the subject of sanctification. That's why he says in verse, I think it's chapter 6, verse 11, consider yourself or reckon yourself to be this. He does that over and over again. Come to the understanding and deeply embrace it and continually review it and talk to yourself about it and... Ask for more understanding of it, of the truth of who you are in Christ. Because that's going to be the key. That's going to be the key that unlocks the door. The the threshold over which you will walk into a pursuit of holiness. Verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will die. Live. I am guessing that there are some wheels turning right now in some of your minds based upon a quick cursory reading of that verse. Wheels turning like, wait a minute. Man, Brad, you've been talking to us over and over and over and over again. That if we are believers, we are secure. That if we have put our faith in Christ, it's all upon His work and His merit and His sufficiency. And that if we have been placed into Him, the Father sees us there, sees us as He sees Christ. And there is nothing that can separate us from Christ. And you just read that if you live according to the flesh, you will die. what in the world doesn't that just contradict everything that we've been studying and you've been sharing over and over again i'm going to try to answer that along with three other questions let me just give you the four questions these four questions are going to serve as the outline that we're going to use for the next three weeks and we're going to answer three of them this morning and then we're going to spend two weeks on the last question at least two weeks Here's the first question related to what I was just saying. Is Paul threatening the follower of Christ here with hell? In verse 13, when Paul says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Is Paul threatening the follower of Christ here with hell? Second question. What specific activity does Paul tell the Christian to engage in? Right here in this verse, what does Paul say that the Christian specifically is to engage in? Thirdly, what is the Christian to kill, to put to death? And then fourth, how is the Christian to kill it? That's going to be our outline. Here's the first question. Is Paul threatening the follower of Christ with hell? I mean, if you just look at the statement, it looks like he's saying two things here on the surface. First, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That seems like a strong warning. And second, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It sounds like a method by which you, through work, save yourself. I mean, does it seem like that on the surface? Do you understand what I'm saying there? If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So we've got we to spend some time right here, camp here long enough until this is really clear. Because if he is threatening the follower of Christ with hell, then I've misinterpreted everything that's been said in the first seven and a half chapters of Romans. Romans. First of all, let me just give you, let's kind of gather a few facts from the verbiage here. I want, to, I want to be, I don't want to skirt anything. I don't want to try to ignore anything here. I want to show you exactly what I believe this is saying. First of all, who is he writing to? He says you here twice. Who is the you that he's referring to in this verse? He's writing to the church at Rome. He's writing to a group of people who at least profess faith in Christ. A group of people who at least are giving some kind of an evidence to their profession by being a part of a church in a pretty difficult time. A time where Nero was on a rampage against believers. So he's writing... To those who would associate themselves with the believers, the group of believers in the city of Rome. Secondly, what is meant by the phrase, you will die? If you live according to the flesh, you will die. What does that phrase mean? Well, listen, it certainly can't mean physical death because he is saying the warning is that some people will die. The if. He can't be talking about physical death because where is mortality hanging around? What percentage rate is mortality kind of hovering around in the human race? Kind of about a 100 maybe, yeah. So he can't be talking about physical death, he's talking about spiritual death, he's talking about the second death, he's talking about separation from God, he's talking about that condition where you are estranged for all eternity from the presence of the holy God of life. And he says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die in this address that he gives to the church at Rome. So how in the world are we to understand that? Is that calling into question the security of the believer? Let me try to explain. Dig a little deeper into here and explain what this means, what I believe is the proper interpretation here. What Paul is doing here in verse 13 is he's doing what he has continually been doing. Just... Remember how critical context is to the interpretation of a text. Paul has throughout, really since Romans chapter five, when he started talking about the comparison between those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ, he started talking about this comparison between an unbeliever and a believer. And Time and time again, he uses language in which he describes an unbeliever one way, and then he gives contrasting language and says, this is what's true of the believer. Descriptive language. Here's what's true of the one. Here's what's true of the other. And he's been doing that down through Romans chapter 8. Let me just show you three different places, four different places. Verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. He's talking about a a contrast between an unbeliever and a believer, not a spiritually immature believer and a spiritually mature believer. We spent an entire Sunday unpacking that truth. I don't have time to do that again, but I'll show you the proof of it in two verses. Look at verse 6. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Again, contrast between a non Christian and a Christian, not an immature Christian and a mature Christian. The proof of the, that in both of those verses, 5 and 6, is in verse 7. Listen, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So the mindset on the flesh that he referred to in verse 5 and verse 6, he says explicitly in verse 7 that that type of a person is hostile to God. cannot possibly be defining a believer? Absolutely not. This is a person that Paul is saying is an enemy of God, is an open rebellion against God, is against the things that God is for and for the things that God is against. That very same phrase that is used in verse uh, 7 is given to describe what he said in verse 5. So it is obvious here that it cannot be a Christian that he's talking about. In fact, he says it is impossible for the person in the flesh. To submit to the law of God. Let me ask you. Is it impossible for the believer. Who has been given a brand new heart. A heart that desires to do the things of God. And not only that. But has been given all the graces that come with justification. And the actual indwelling of the spirit of God. Is it impossible for that person to in any way submit to the law of God? Of course it's not. You don't do it perfectly But we do it because it's our longing. It's our bent now as a believer. So Paul is making a contrast between an unbeliever and a believer. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Paul directly, explicitly says right here that everyone with the spirit of Christ belongs to Christ. Anyone that doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, what? Does not belong. Two different people here. One that is an unbeliever, lost at enmity with God, in open hostility to God, without the Spirit, in the flesh, under the dominion and rule and reign of sin, and one that is in Christ, in the Spirit, having the grace of God, being now at peace with God, desire to live for God, two radically different people. This description goes on and on, contrasting these two. And he comes to verse 13, and he's doing the same thing in verse 13. He's continuing the description between an unbeliever and a believer. And he says here in verse 13, he makes a truth statement about The unbeliever. Listen, first half of the verse. A life being lived according to the flesh. Same verbiage as verse 5. Exact same phrase as verse 5, talking about the unbeliever. Then in verse 13b, the second half of the verse, he gives the contrasting statement a picture of the believer. And he says, If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So what he's doing here is he's giving us a description between an unbeliever and a believer. He is not saying that if you're a believer and you fall into sin, you are in jeopardy of hell. He's continuing the contrast. He's defining and describing what an unbeliever's life is like. And he is defining and describing what a believer's life is like. Therefore, the conclusion here, try to summarize this, is not that the true believer who sins jeopardizes their salvation. What it does is it simply brings into question the veracity of their profession of faith. Secondly, The conclusion here is that not that in the second half of the verse, if we do the right things, we justify ourselves. Put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's not like we are working toward justifying ourselves by putting to death the deeds of the body. That's not what he's talking about. He is simply saying this, that when you put to death the deeds of the body, By the Spirit of God, you are giving evidence of the fact that you are justified. You are showing the fruit of a justified life. You are not working for the merits to make yourself justified. Radically different. Radically different perspective. Listen, if we interpreted verse 13 to mean that if you sin, you're in jeopardy of hell as a believer, and that if you do a bunch of right things that you justify yourself, do you know what we would need to do? We would need to take the first seven and a half chapters of Romans and throw them out. Because he spent the first, for example, the first five chapters to prove one truth. The truth, That it says the only way any person can be justified. The only way a man or a woman can be justified is if they come to Jesus Christ as a sinner and they trust in the full sufficiency of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and by faith alone in Christ alone, then they are justified because by themselves no one is righteous. No, not one. He spent five chapters, five chapters to drive that truth home Again and again and again. So if we come to chapter 8 verse 13 and say, well now he's talking about earning your justification, your salvation, then you just need to tear the pages of Romans 1 through Romans 8, 12 out. It cannot be interpreted that way based upon its context. So here... Is what he's saying that the faith that gives you peace with God is the faith that starts within you a war with sin. Let me say that again. The peace that gives, the faith that gives you peace with God is the same faith that starts a war with sin in your life. You say that another way. If you're at war with sin, then you're at home with Jesus. If you're not at war with sin, you're not home with Jesus. I know that there are varying degrees and intensities to that war and that's what I want to talk to you about over the next couple of weeks. But the point here is the contrast between two radically different lives, two radically different existences. But it is not the war with sin that gives you the peace with Christ. It is the peace with Christ that puts you at war with sin. That's the point. Second question. What specifically does Paul tell the Christian to engage in? What specifically does Paul tell the Christian to engage in? He says, I want you to put to death something. I want you to put to death something. You see, verse 12 He tells us this when he says, you're not a debtor anymore. Don't live like it. In verse 12, he is saying, the principle of sin in your mortal body, don't let it push you around anymore. That's the negative side of the principle. You're not a debtor there anymore. Verse 12. Don't let it push you around. This body of mortal sin that you're still connected to. And then in verse 13, he goes to the next step. And he says, what you need to do is you need to take up arms. And you need to attack. You need to get into the war with sin. You need to be on the offense. You need to get militant about the battle. You need to engage in a violent activity. You see he's calling us here to kill. I mean do you see that? He is calling put to death. That's a mortal battle. He is calling us to kill something. So he is calling us to a real battle. A battle to the death. Secondly, It is a continual battle. The word used in the Greek, the verb used here for put to death is a verb that is given in the present tense, meaning it is an ongoing battle. It is a day-by-day battle. It's not that you enter into the skirmish every week or two or every month or two to take up arms. No, he is saying it is a daily battle that you get up to and engage in every single day. It is ongoing. It is continual. It is to be a relentless fight in the life of a believer, this battle that they are to have to the death with something. Continual. So, Paul is saying here to the Christians of his day, and he's saying to the Christians of every day in every location and in every generation, he is saying, take up arms, get militant, get intentional. Realize that you are engaged day by day in a real battle. And that battle is a mortal battle, is a violent battle, and you need to be after death in it. You need to be satisfied with nothing but death. And then thirdly, specifically, precisely, what are we to be at war with? What is the Christian to kill? The Christian is to kill the deeds of the body. He's not calling you to a war with somebody else. He's not calling you to a war with a lost world. Oh my goodness, no. He's not calling you to a war with other believers. No, this is about you. He is calling you to a war with something within you. And what is the seat in which that battle takes place? The realm. It's your body. It's your mortal body. This thing that has not yet fully been redeemed. In which sin still reigns. Though you are redeemed spiritually and in soul. You still have this mortal body. And that becomes the venue. In which sin tries to get traction. Which sin tries to rise up. Against who you are, and against what the Spirit of God is doing in you. And so Paul is saying, I'm calling it a battle against the sin in your own life. A mortal battle, a fatal battle, to be satisfied with nothing else but death. An intense battle, a continual battle. one that will not be ended until Jesus Christ returns and you see him for who he is and the Spirit of God finishes that final work of redemption in your mortal body. It's going to go on until then. He's calling us to kill the sin in us. Now, one other comment about the sin that is not just talking about when he says the deeds of the body. Pretty easy to understand that is simply the external acts of sin. Those things that we actually participate in externally or visibly it includes those, but that does not encompass the term, the deeds of the body. He is, he's talking about the principle of sin in you, and deeds go deeper. Sin goes deeper than deeds. Sin has a root to it. So he's also talking about the motives and the desires of the heart. He's talking about the functions of the mind as well as the external deeds of the body, all three of them. And he is saying what you need to be at war with is that entire principle of sin that is within your mortal reality here. That affects your heart, that affects your mind, that affects your actions. And what you need to be is in a militant battle with it. Day in and day out, where you make a commitment that you're not going to give it even one step of ground, not one movement forward, not make one compromise, but you are going to actually be seeking to attack it. Not passive, kind of trying to push it back. That's not what he's asking. He's not talking about repression here. In fact, Repression can actually lead to worse sin when you simply try to push sin back, take a passive stance toward it, kind of exert your own willpower against it and not be in a militant attack mode against it through the power of the Spirit. If you're just trying to resist it, when you let your guard down, it'll rush in greater than it was before. He is saying, take up arms against it. be out to kill it in your life continually have as the goal to kill the sin that is in you that's what he is calling us here commanding us here to do in Romans 8:13 the great statement of history outside of this statement here and other statements that we'll be looking at in the next couple of weeks but outside of the inspired text, the great treatment in history related to the killing of sin was drafted by a man in the 16th century by the name of John Owens John Owens, he was a president of a Christian university, the training up of pastors and took some institution that was dying and through his preaching and his leadership infused it with life and vitality and would preach to them in one of the series of messages that he gave to them was a series of messages on Romans 8.13 and he called it the mortification of sin in the believer. One verse, one half of a verse, 80 some page long, eight and a half by 11 single space typed treatment of a half of a verse. I've spent the last week and a half pouring through that and also the page after page by Martin Lloyd Jones and his treatment on the mortification of sin or the killing of sin and Charles Hodge's treatment on that and current day John Piper's treatment on the mortification or the killing of sin and James Montgomery Boyce and on and on, feeling deeply convinced, longing deeply that I would understand this subject for Brad, first of all, because Brad needs to kill sin in Brad. Brad really needs to be killing sin in Brad and so that I could stand before you the next few weeks and I could give you some real practical help and motivational challenge that you would join with me in the journey here over the next two weeks and say, I am going to take the challenge here. I'm going to hear the call of God in his word, and I am going to seek to apply the truth here and learn in a greater way than I am doing right now to be killing sin in my own life. And I'm passionate about this, ladies and gentlemen, because I believe this is Quite possibly, as I think I said at the beginning of this message, from the perspective of God, maybe the greatest need in the church of this country, in this generation. That the world looks at us, looks at those professing the name of Christ, and they say, they're not any different than we are. in the way that they act, in the way that they talk, in the way that they conduct their business, in the way that they engage their relationships, they're not any different than we are, which causes them then to say, Christianity is an empty religion and Christ is not worth the effort. You see, the main issue with our sin is not how it hurts us. The main issue is that it affects our ability to bring glory to God and lift high the name of Jesus Christ so that the world would hear it and see it and be compelled by it and say, they are different than me. They have something that must be outside of this world because there's no way I could live like that. And I want to find out what they have. So I'm asking God that he would take this next few weeks and he would use it in ways that he's never used. A series that I've preached before to help us deal at a deep heart level with what he wants us to deal with in relating to us killing sin in us through the power of the Spirit. You see, sin, from the day that you were born, it has been out to kill you. And from the moment that you are reborn, you should be out to kill it. That's the call of Romans chapter 8 verse 13. I wish that I could effectively communicate this. I'm asking the Spirit of God. I know that I can't, but the Spirit of God can help you grasp the sincerity of this. I am not condemning anyone here. I know this is a hard subject. I know that this is not the fun stuff to hear. But I'm not saying it condemning at all. I'm not judging anyone. I'm speaking to Brad first and foremost. And then I'm also speaking to you because I want to help you. I want to have help from the word of God myself, and then where I have found the bread, I want to pass that on to you and help you so that you can be killing sin in your life as a believer. Let me say this. If you are not a follower of Christ, if you're not a Christian here this morning, I am glad that you're here. But listen, I am not asking you to be killing sin. You can't. And for you to attempt to do so in human effort and human power is going to do one of two things. It is either going to turn you into a legalist, fill your heart up with pride And drive you further from God than you already are. Or secondly, it's going to put you in a pit of despair because of your inability. A place of despondency. You see, the only way a person can engage in the exercise of killing sin in them is if they have already died with Christ. You see, in you dying with Christ, what has happened is that your sin has already been killed in reality. And the only sin that you can kill is the sin that has already been killed by Christ. So this is not for the unbeliever to say, I'm going to follow this and I'm going to justify myself. Uh, No, it's, For you, it's to show you your desperate need and cause you to throw aside any self attempts and in humility, throw yourself before the person of Jesus Christ, who is the son of God, who died for your sins and rose again to victory and is now freely by his grace and all of his sufficiency and none of yours offering to forgive you. If you'll just put your faith in him, that's what I want you to get out of this is that you need a Savior and His name is Jesus and He's ready right now to save you. But to the believer, it is. Let's engage together the process of killing sin so that we can, in a greater and greater fashion, Do what we were created to do. Glorify God. And by glorifying him with a holy lifestyle. Cause others around our lives who do not know him. To see the conduct of our lives. And praise God. And come to a realization of Christ. Because they see Christ in us, his character, his motives, his desires. They hear his speech through us, they feel his love through us as we engage them. The more and more that we kill sin through the power of the Spirit the more and more the power of the Spirit will work in our lives to use us to be a witness to the person of Jesus Christ, to the glory of the Father. Please stand. Father, So I just just come before you here at the close of this introductory message, proclamation of the call in Scripture for the follower of Christ to be continually killing sin in their life through the power of the Spirit. And I'm asking you, Lord, that you would you'd just begin to really do a deep work in our hearts. Right now, from what has already been shared, your spirit would really begin working and moving in ways toward the goal you have in mind. That throughout this week, those that have heard my voice here this morning have heard what I believe is your proclamation through the power of your spirit this morning, that you'd be bringing this to their mind and you'd be preparing their heart to be engaged in this journey. I'm convinced, Lord, that the degree of the revelation that we're going to receive is going to run parallel to the degree of our commitment on the front side to listen to whatever you have to say and to apply it so God just be preparing our hearts and then Lord as we dive into the how to how we are to kill the sin that is trying to kill us that you would let that proclamation of your sacred text be so razor sharp so effectively wielded so compassionately applied that we would see An incredible move toward greater and greater holiness in our own lives. In humility, no arrogance, no pride, but a greater and greater process of sanctification being done by your spirit in us as we apply ourselves it's so clear you're giving us something to do here you're telling us to put to death that is action on our part and at the same time it tells us we can't do it we have to do it by the spirit so it's our initiative our action our engagement in absolute and total dependence with the work of the Spirit. So Lord, help us to do that, God. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.